How does COVID-19 impact one's clinical clerkship experience? What should you look for in an MD-PhD program when applying to various schools? And what's it like to be an MD-PhD student? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Claire, a third-year medical student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I've got another great guest today, Claire, future Dr. Bensard. How are you doing? I'm doing well this wonderful Monday morning. And then where, where are you exactly in the curriculum? Because you've had a longer journey than most uh, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, which we'll talk about. But where are you exactly? Yeah, so I'm in my seventh year technically at the University of Utah, but I'm in my third year of medical school. And Let's talk about, you know, what we're going, what's going on right now. So where were you when you got the, um, what rotation were you on and how did that come down when like people were asked to leave and you know, how, how did that unfold in your eyes? Um, so I was on my OBGYN rotation and I was started on OB. And so I was through two weeks of my days on labor and delivery and I was really enjoying it. Um, the residents on OB were phenomenal. They were incredibly communicative. They were great teachers. And so when all of this started happening and we started seeing uncertainty across the clinical, um, setting, they were very upfront with us about, look, we're going to be reducing our interaction, um, with patients. We're going to be reducing our interaction with other providers. This probably is going to affect you guys. We're going to try really hard to, you know, maximize your experience, but just be prepared that something's going to happen. Something might change. So in a way, like, so in a way we had that preparation to know that our experience in OBGYN might not be the same as everybody else's who had already gone through it. Mm -hmm. And so when we got pulled that Friday, so it was the end of my second week, they, we were told, we were going to transition to a virtual curriculum. And I kind of, it kind of like made me like, kind of bulk inside because I was thinking, well, how do you deliver babies virtually? How do you learn about? <laughs> I hadn't thought about it like that. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's like, because I, and I think part of it is because I teach wilderness first responder um, and through, through the university of Utah. And one of the things that we talk about is like how to, how to manage um, an expecting mother if she happens to be, you know, hiking and going to labor. And a lot of the folks that I teach are, are just like, well, okay, like this video that you showed us doesn't really, like, doesn't really explain the, the actual process. And now that I've actually seen it, I realize how poor the virtual environment can be in terms of something as visceral and um, hands-on as a delivery or, for instance, in, in surgery or any of those other really um, hands-on technical procedure-driven fields. Wow. So, but even then, I will say that I think the OBGYN uh, leadership, our, our clerkship director, Tiffany, uh, Dr. Tiffany Weeper, uh, did a phenomenal job of getting us access to all sorts of virtual, uh, virtual uh, curriculum. So, videos, uh, surgical videos, uh, wonderful uh, lessons and resources um, so that we felt, uh, felt confident, at least I felt confident, um, opting in to take the shelf. Um, as opposed to waiting to take it. Yeah. Well, 
Claire, I want to dive more into that currently what's going on. Cause I know you've, uh, you've done some really amazing work and efforts, but I want to go, let's go, let's go in the, go in the time machine. Let's go back. <laughs> what, like, you know, well, how old are you? Where were you? Or, I mean, like what, what happened when like MD PhD, when did that first enter your mind? Like when, where did that dream come from to not only be a physician as well as a scientist? What was this like high school or is it undergrad or, or is it before high school? Like when did that, when did that first enter your mind? So I guess I'm a little, I'm a little bit of a funny case because I knew I always liked medicine. Um, I always liked people. I loved interacting with people and hearing their stories. And I loved always trying to fix things and trying to help people that way. Um, and so I, and my, my father's a physician, uh, he's a surgeon, a trauma surgeon. Um, and I, I kind of, you know, I had a little bit of this, like in high school, I was like, yes, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to go to medical school. It's going to be great. And then as I went to college, I rebelled a little. Um, I got very interested in engineering, again, fixing things, solving problems. And I got really interested in tissue engineering. And so that's where I started into the research lab, um, working actually in cartilage tissue engineering in the lab of Stephanie Bryant in, uh, at CU Boulder. And I had a blast. I loved it. And then I took a cancer biology class and I loved that. And I wanted to do cancer biology research. And I did um, an undergraduate research project with Dr. Uh, Joaquin Espinoza again at CU Boulder. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, well, maybe maybe I'm going to go to grad school. Maybe I'm going to get a PhD. But then I had also through college again, kind of cult like nurtured this love of medicine. I got in my EMT. I worked um, as a wilderness first responder. I was a camp counselor that took kids on trips. So I got to fix all manners of scrapes and bruises. Um, and so I was, I was really kind of hitting this decision point of when everybody was applying in my junior year of college, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. And I went to a panel and I, to be honest, I did not even know that an MD PhD combined program was a thing until this panel of my junior <laughs> year of college. It was the big reveal. Like, oh, it you can was, combine both yeah. your loves into one program. Yeah. Yes. And I think it was partially because of, I mean, particularly in all my, my dad's surgical colleagues that are close family friends, they do research, but they kind of were this accelerated, like they wanted to get through their surgical training. So they didn't, not a lot of them have, have uh, dedicated like research training in the sense of a PhD or a degree but a lot of them do research. So I was like, I was thinking, I was like, well, if I, if I am an MDL, I'm definitely going to do some research, which we see high quality research across the board coming from um, MD run labs. So it was more, it was more that I had really found this love of research in, in the cancer um, field that provoked me to say, Hey, this combined degree program sounds awesome. It sounds like exactly what I want. I want to be uh, well-trained in medicine and I want to be well-trained in PhD level science. So, and the, and the length of the program didn't dissuade you because it, it is a long, it's like anywhere from yeah. seven to 12 years. I, I don't know. Be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, it is a long road. And I think part of that was in college, I, um, I was a pretty efficient person in college. I, I took a lot of credits. Um, I also raced mountain bikes. And so it didn't really scare me that it was uh, a long program and that there was a lot of work in t- entailed. I, I, I think I, I think in my head, I was like, oh yeah, I'll definitely be on the shorter end. I'll be on the seven year program. Um, but that, yeah. know, that I, I, I'm not allowed to out. talk about the seven year. Cause like, that's like Valhalla. It's like the Viking conception oh. of heaven. No one, well, everyone dreams about it, but I'm not sure too many people actually get there. So. Very true. And you know, people will even say like, Oh, well, if you do a computational PhD, it'll be shorter. And it's, that's not true either. It mm. totally depends on the science that you do and whether or not you're lucky. 
And I think my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite mentors, Dean Tanton, um, he's a, he's a professor of pathology. He said, if you want to do a three-year PhD, you better plan for two years because you know about a year's worth of work is going to go wrong. Mm. And he said, same thing. If you want to do four years, you got to plan for three years. Um, so it was, I, I've gotten very good mentorship along the way, but the length didn't scare me. Um, okay. and it was something that I thought was a really good investment because, and part of this was coming from talking to a lot of, uh, MDs who also run labs mm-hmm. is that they had a, they had a startup process. They, it took them a couple of years to get their feet wet in research and really understand how they wanted to run their lab, how to get grants. And so I figured I would get that done in a, in a mentored guided environment, um, while getting my PhD. So the so you went to CU Boulder. Mm-hmm. You're 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 living your life. You're doing all that you need to do. How do you start winnowing down what programs to apply to? What what was your thought process? <laughs> I mean, what do you what do you look for in a combined MD PhD program? Um, so I made a list. So I had I had a, a different aspects of training that were really important to me. Um, one, I knew I wanted to stay academic um, because I love the idea of being on the forefront of medicine, of delivering high quality care to very rare cases um, and being able to like learn from that and, and to work with other uh, tertiary centers across the nation um, that do the same. So I knew I wanted to stay academic. So I wanted to find a really vibrant um, academic setting that had an undergraduate campus um, attached to it. And the reason for that was I wanted to have the ability when I did my PhD to mentor undergrads. Um, and I got a chance to do that while I was doing my PhD in Jared Rudder's lab. And, and that was really important to me was finding somewhere that had undergrads available to learn like I did at CU, um, that they love research um, and to really culture that, that, that passion. So, and I, and then part of, part of it is too, is that in this training, we're always teaching, we're always learning and we're always teaching. And so I, I thought it would be really valuable to also have that as a part of my training so that I would learn how to teach effectively um, in multiple different environments. So, so number one, academic center uh, attached to an undergrad campus. Then number two was kind of more of the, again, again, thinking about the length of the program, like where do I want to live for about eight to 10 years? And let's, let's plan on the decade. I want where do I want to spend a decade? And I, I kind of drew back on my interests um, outside of medicine and outside of science. I, I am a pretty outdoorsy gal. I love to hike and ski and mountain bike, and I have a dog. And so those are attributes of the city in which this academic center um, was situated that kind of had to meet my needs. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for something that was close to the mountains or at least some sort of outdoorsy spot um, with, or a good park system. Um, and then somewhere where I could actually find a house with a yard. I didn't want to have to live in an apartment and I didn't really want to live in a concrete jungle. Um, especially because I tend to have dogs that are, are uh, more like working breeds. <laughs> I have an <laughs> a- Aussie lab right now. So he's, they need their freedom. Yes, he does. He yeah. needs squirrels to bark at. Um, and so he, so I, so that was kind of another attribute. I was like, where's the city? And then I think the third part that I'd gotten very good um, guidance from, from folks as I, as I was applying is that you'll find your fit. So interview around, um, but you'll find programs where the student body really inspires you. You'll meet uh, professors that you really jive with and you can kind of see how well connected the community is. Like, do they have kind of an open door policy or is it more of a, you have to email and set up, set up a meeting. And so I set my, I was told to apply to a lot more places, but I, 
was very, again, again, because option two of like, I really wanted um, a city and a, and a program to fit my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided on my, on my applications that, you know what, I'm only going to interview places that I would actually move to. So New York city went out the window, LA went out the window. Um, <laughs> San Francisco, while beautiful and having a lot of beautiful access also was a little bit tough for me to think about. Um, so I, I really kind of restricted myself to programs in the Intermountain West and also some in the Midwest, but more to the, to the North, like Wisconsin, um, and Michigan. And then I also looked in the Pacific Northwest. So, cause it's Portland and Seattle just have a little bit better, um, kind of flows through their cities. And I, I have to, I have to be honest, uh, I completely forgot about Salt Lake city. I'm from Denver. I thought that Denver was the biggest, best city in the West. Oh yeah. And, like the whole right? Denver, Salt Lake city rivalry. You're stumbling yeah. into it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I didn't even think about it and I happened to be interviewing. I was actually interviewing in Oregon and somebody said, you know, you sound like you'd be a great fit at the university of Utah. Did you apply there? And I said, the University of Utah has an MD PhD program. So obviously I had I had missed, I had overlooked some things. And that's mm-hmm. where I think it's really, it's really important to know, like to get, you know, really take a big look at places and 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 really look at the map well, because that was something that I didn't do a great job of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and look at where I ended up, right? So yeah. I um so I was very fortunate because this was an early interview. And so I was able to meet all the deadlines to apply to the Utah. MD PhD program and get in on one of the last interview dates. So I was very fortunate, very, very fortunate because it worked out really well. And when I think about all the other programs that I interviewed at, I enjoyed them. They were, you know, it was kind of, I could see myself there. Um, but I noticed some interesting quirks about either the way the, the way the MD PhD students kind of presented themselves and how like connected they were. And then I came here and I could not believe how hospitable it was. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe how interconnected the community was. Everyone knew everyone else. And that was MD, PhD students in their eighth year, talking to the first years, to the professors, to the assistant professors. And people really wanted you to find your space and your home. And I just felt incredibly welcomed. I felt like I fit in very, very well. And I just, it was a group of people that I knew wanted me to, wanted to see me succeed. Um, and And it was a group of people. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And as long as we're being honest, Claire, like, like I started this position in 2012 and you're actually one of the first memories I have with the MD PhD program. Mm Because I just kept on hearing about, Oh, Claire Bensard, we need to get Claire Bensard, Claire Bensard, this Claire Bensard, that. (laughs) And I just remember like, like, wow, like this is like a rock star. And I remember back then the program was smaller Mm-hmm. And I think it's really grown over the years. And I think you have been very instrumental in that as far as like recruiting and like getting the word out and like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. befriending and helping answering questions. Cause like we're interviewing a lot more people from the MD PhD right. program. But yeah, one of my first memories with MD PhD program is Claire Bensard this, Claire Bensard that. It was just, everyone seemed to uh, fall in love with you and just really wanted oh. you to come here. I, it sounds like that was reciprocal. Like you are feeling oh, the Utah love too. So a hundred percent. And I, I actually, I mean, I fell in love with this place and with the people um, it was, I mean, our program administrator, Janet Bassett is just the heart of the program. And she took, and you could just tell she really cares about everybody, but that also comes through and how everybody in the whole training process of the graduate school, as well as on the medical school side, you, you felt that. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like everybody was really invested in the students, um, success and, and also the students 
were really empowered to reach out to experts. Experts were not on a pedestal. They were not unapproachable. And that was something that was, I didn't realize how important that was, uh, especially in a academic setting. Um, because that's how great ideas are born. When you get to chance to talk to somebody and kick around an idea um, over coffee or just on, like as we walk around our beautiful campus. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it, was a, it was really just kind of one of those things where I just, my eyes opened and I was like, this is the place. This is where I want to go. Oh my gosh, I hope I get in. And I still remember to this day, I was sitting in my, I was working as a research tech because I took a year off in between undergrad and college or undergrad and, and MD, PhD. And I was working in a research lab and I was sitting at my desk analyzing PCR and the director called me and said, Claire, we got a spot for you. And I just started screaming. I was like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> when can I move? I'm coming. Yeah. I'll see you in June. <laughs> um, so you get here, Claire, and how, how was that jump from, you know, undergrad to med school? I mean, was that an easy transition for you or um, what, what, like was the amount of work, amount of material? Is it something that yeah. you were able to keep up with or did you have to kind of redo your studying skills? Um, how, how was that for you? I think my, my, my sister and my mom would probably say that I, in general, I, I definitely love to learn, but I have, a, I do have a hard time sitting down and being very dedicated about my studying. Um, I tend to like to study in kind of short bursts because then I get, I tend to get like, kind of like, Ooh, what's over here. Ooh, like that's <laughs> someone to chat with. So I, like, I have a really hard time studying like in the library, for instance, because people walk by and I always want to say hi to them. So I have to be like kind of in this, in this zone to study. Um, I would say that the jump, the material, uh, the first year of medical school is geared to ramp us up. So we started in our phase one, uh, phase one unit where it was fast paced, but it was a nice overview. And so that was really helpful for me because I was coming from a very solidly molecular (laughs) biology background. Mm -hmm. I'd never taken anatomy. I had never taken physiology and so it was really good for me to kind of get up on par with some of my classmates uh, who were anatomy TAs in undergrad. Um, and so it was, it was very helpful to have that kind of balance. Um, and so I felt, I found that really manageable and it also helped me learn how to study in medical school. Uh, what was really important. It was important to get the facts down. So it's finding some sort of like either question bank or a flashcard system so that I could test my knowledge randomly. But then also I love to read textbooks. I'm a little bit odd that way. Mm-hmm. And then I would also just make sure that I had my time to read. So, so. It, it, so, so it sounds, it sounds doable. It's, it was doable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with, You've kind of alluded to it, but with your PhD, um, did you come in thinking you would do X, but then turned out to do Y? I mean, how, how did mm-hmm. you arrive? I mean, I know there's kind of, as a way as I understand it, you rotate in different labs. So yes. You get exposed to different mentors and different science. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's your decision about which lab to join and pursue your PhD work. So. Yes. Did you, in the summer before med school starts, there, there are some rotations. And then I know there, there are some more in between first and second year. But ultimately, mm-hmm. I think you're supposed to choose after your second year med school. Um, so how did, how did that process work for you? How did you go through it? 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely the dinosaur version of this because we have changed. And so now people get a lot more rotations and that was something that they took kind of from our experience. So we, it used to be that you would spend a whole summer in one lab. So you'd only get two rotations. And if you can think about the university of Utah and how many wonderful research labs we have, you have to be very selective, right. And kind of do your homework about, Oh, like maybe I should go to a couple lab meetings before I commit to rotating in this lab. So my experience was, um, you know, I've kind of felt like I had two shots to find a lab. Uh, there was, there is an option that if you didn't, if you weren't totally sold on your first year, you could do a third after the second year, but it was kind of like a, you're matching into that one. So you're going to be joining that lab. But so that, that was kind of, kind of an intense part of the program was finding your, finding your PhD home. Um, I got good advice again, uh, and I think that also kind of came down from the more senior MD PhD students. They said, you really want to find a project you like, like you're interested in, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, this is my life's work. This is my, this is my hundred percent passion. I'm going to always do this. I'm always going to work on something like this. They said, find a place that you enjoy the project, but really that you enjoy the professor who leads the lab, mm. that they are an excellent mentor, that you connect well, that you could see yourself if something, let's say, for instance, I'm not you know, speaking personally here or not, that you knock something over and maybe let your lab notebook on fire, mm-hmm. um, that you'd feel comfortable telling that person that happened. <laughs> and that maybe, <laughs> and maybe that in the, the course of that event, that some very valuable samples that took about six months to create uh, were ruined. Like that you have to have like that kind of relationship, somebody that you feel completely open, open communication and, and you trust hundred percent. And vulnerable. Sounds like being vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah being very vulnerable because getting a PhD is, is really that process. Mm-hmm. You are wrong a lot. <laughs> You're wrong all the time. So, and experiments fail all the time. So it's, it's one about being vulnerable and also about building resilience. So which, um, which lab did you end up picking? Which, which d- discipline? Yeah. Uh, so I, again, I had this kind of ba- funny background. I did cartilage engineering. I did cancer biology. And I, I thought I was like, oh man, this is my time to swerve. I can go to, I could try anything. So I decided to do a rotation in metabolism uh, in, a, in, a, in a yeast biology. Like they use yeast as a model organism and that studied different uh, metabolic transporters and enzymes. And this was a Jared Rudder. And I thought, you know what? I think this is going to be a really fun rotation. I really like the lab. I really like Jared. But I think metabolism is just really going to help me for my first year of medical school because I keep hearing about this, this Krebs cycle <laughs> that I have to memorize. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just going to get a leg up. So I, I rotated in that lab and I really enjoyed it. And there were two, uh, two MD-PhD students who preceded me in that lab who had started pivoting away from yeast and started moving up the kind of up the chain of model organisms. So they were working in cell lines and they were starting to get a mouse project going. And so and then I, I thought, okay, that was a great, that was a great rotation. I probably won't join that lab. And so then I did another rotation where again, I swerved because again, I always liked medicine and I liked uh, kind of outdoorsy things. So I thought maybe I'd really like muscle. And so I did a project with uh, Gab Carden, who's a wonderful PI, uh, studying congenital diaphragmatic hernia in, in mice. And this was a wonderful skill set because I learned how to work with mice. I'd never done that before. And then I also learned a lot about uh, muscle and muscle stem cells. And surprisingly, this all kind of comes back and they all kind of came back. All these skills I learned in my rotations um, helped me in my, in my final PhD uh, project, my thesis. So I was kind of coming down to that decision point. I'd done my two rotations and I just felt like uh, metabolism really started to intrigue me. I, I kind of came back to really wanting to study cancer, 
biology, really cancer initiation. And so I talked it over with Jared and he was really excited about supporting me in this project of studying um, how our stem cells, especially in in the gut, in the colon, how they initiate uh, metabolically in order to support a brand new cancer. And so we kind of came up with this project. And the best part about this is I told you that I, I, I did this, this rotation because I wanted it to like learn, master, and then never think about the Krebs cycle again. Mm-hmm. My entire PhD centered on the connection of, the, of, of that pathway with the rest of the, rest wow. of the cells. So you, you know the Krebs cycle like the back of your hand. You could like... Yeah, you probably uh-huh. I, about yep. it. citrate, yeah. isocitrate, yeah, like all the way, all the way around, wow. <laughs> all the different offshoots. How we, how the cell doesn't really always run in a circle; it kind of sometimes runs backwards and forwards and siphons things off as it needs. Yeah, so, and I loved it. I, I thought that was a really fascinating thing, and it really it it kind of married all of my interests. Like I I, I love to cook. I love to think about how, how do we like do things in our daily lives to be healthy. And there's a lot of things in the media about, you know, don't eat this, it could cause cancer. Don't eat that, it could cause cancer. And that was really actually testing like, well, if you change how the cell itself eats, how it metabolizes things, does it become more likely to become cancer? Mm-hmm. And we were able to, to kind of peek into the answer of that question because everybody, so, so that was really fun. Is that your main hypothesis? I mean, I mean, I, I, you, you know, a lot more about this than I do. Uh, it's been years since I've studied the Krebs cycle. <laughs> so, I mean, like from a 30,000 foot view, what, what, what was your research on? I mean, what, 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 how does it yeah. apply to kind of the broader scope of medicine or, and science, I guess? Yeah. So what we kind of studied, uh, was let's take healthy, healthy colon cells. This is cells that line your large intestine. Mm-hmm. And there, there's little stem cells in them. They regenerate very much like our skin. And so, but it's on the inside. And so what we did was we actually altered the way that cell handles its metabolites. Hmm. So when it sees a, sh- a molecule of sugar and it says, it says, okay, I'm going to do this with this molecule of sugar. We've actually changed the pathway so it can't go down one route. So it's, I can do all this other stuff with sugar, the sugar molecule, but I can't use it in the Krebs cycle. And so then that actually, that kind of metabolism, that kind of program looks a lot, that's like a lot like the normal stem cell. So we effectively gave stem cell-like metabolism to the entire colon lining. And then we just watched and we asked whether or not that would predispose a mouse with this kind of genetic mutation in its gut to form colon, colon cancer. Hmm. Um, and we, like every good PhD student, you get a little antsy. So you decide to add, add a couple little extra things because you don't want to wait for the entire length of the mouse's life. So I, I had two models where I had one, which I called the Western diet, where I kind of fed the mice some carcinogens <laughs> Wow! and, um, gave them a couple bouts of diarrhea. And then they, uh, that I looked to see if they had formed colon cancer or not. And it turns out that our genetic mutation, giving the lining of the gut, a more stem-like or a more regenerative type of metabolism promoted the formation of cancer. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? You're really good at regenerating, but you might form cancer. So this, me taking the next step forward, this could have implications on how we treat colon cancer or mm-hmm. like diet modifications. Cause I know there's a lot of pop sciencey stuff around this. And, yeah. yeah. So I guess like kind of my, 
dream goal would be to prevent the formation of colon cancer, right? So understanding the process of initiation means that then if we can, then we could block initiation. Um, so the easiest way to think about that was, well, if we had a molecular target, could we drug it? But then you think about that, the ri- like the risk to, risk to benefit ratio, we're going to end the number needed to treat. We would have to effectively put something in the drinking water, right? And mm-hmm. people already bulk it having fluoride in their drinking water. <laughs> so True. that probably wasn't going to be a, vo- a valuable solution. So it's really on that second point of the, of the question you asked. It's really on how does this inform what kind of cancer forms and what are its susceptibilities? So what's really interesting in the, in the practice of oncology now is how folks are thinking about attacking a cancer cell. One is through um, in chemotherapies. There's kind of two flavors of chemotherapies. Some attack a cell that's dividing and some attack a cell based on its metabolic program. And sometimes those things kind of overlap. And so we're really interested in, in figuring out, well, how does having this background metabolic program inform the cancer and make it somehow vulnerable? How has it, you know, effectively, I I like to think about it as like a highway construction project, right? So if I've blocked one part of a highway, you have to divert and go around. But that might be slower. That might also come with its own problems. Maybe there's a pothole and maybe we can make that pothole bigger and we can stop the cancer from going forward and becoming even more malignant or metastasizing. So that would be, kind of be where I would think about going next with this project. Wow. Claire, this is, this is amazing. Like I, I've just learned so much. Um, <laughs> jumping They're back, fun. I just want to pivot. Just jumping back like to the med school part, was it, was it hard? Because like my, the way I kind of see things is, you know, you start med school and you're like, you're with your classmates mm-hmm. and you're in the classroom and all these small group discussions and clinical exams and like all that type of activity. And then for you to essentially step off and do research, like how was that like like transition away from your classmates, I guess? And and then vis-a-vis, like I I think almost all of them have graduated and moved on to residency. Mm-hmm. And, oh yeah. Like, yeah. So like <laughs> how, how like, I mean, you knew it was coming, but I, I don't know if that made it any less difficult to say kind of see you later or goodbye to a lot of your classmates. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you approach this? How'd it go? Well, and I, I always like to highlight this too. This was back in the era of mandatory attendance at the U. Oh, <laughs> so I really knew my class well. We sat through every lecture together. We went to like it, you know, people were always in the room. Like we had a hundred people in a lecture hall every day. Mm. Um, and so it was really hard to watch folks go on into, into clerkships and rotations and figure out what they want to do. And I think part of that was that I I realized that that day would come for me. So I really, I stayed a part of what they were going through and maybe tried to collect a few little tidbits of things of how to be successful. Um, But then also just to celebrate with them that they had reached this milestone that they had worked so hard for. And I I think that really just culminates in match day, which was just so much fun to watch all my classmates match and be excited and see where they were going. Um, And then I've stayed in touch with quite a few and some have even stayed in Utah and we've, we've stayed really close. And they've been great mentors to me as I, as I transitioned back. But I think it was also because I had chosen to do an MD-PhD. Leaving medical school wasn't, it was hard, but it wasn't as hard because I was really excited about getting started on my PhD. Okay. And, and I got to kind of integrate in and meet a whole new host of people in the graduate school side, in different journal clubs. And then I also still had my, had my people. I still, the MD-PhD program itself be kind of became more of my home. Mm. Um, and those are the folks that I, I knew I was going to spend the next you know, six years with. 
and then you alluded to it, Claire, but like the re-entry back mm-hmm. into third year, how was that? Was that smooth? Was it difficult? Um, like, you know, yeah. again, like, you know, you're just kind of jumping into rotations and I, I know they have a class, mm-hmm. some like breakout sessions, but I don't know if that can truly prepare anyone to like, okay, to go from no. nothing to all of a sudden you're a third year student on a busy mm-hmm. rotation. So how, how was yeah. that transition for you? So I, I, I thought it was okay. Um, it's definitely challenging. And I think that I was fortunate that in my lottery picks for my uh, clerkship schedule, I kind of eased myself into third year. So I started, I actually, my paper, uh, my thesis was done, defended, done, but my paper hadn't been accepted yet. So I did two weeks, my, actually my first two weeks of third year were still in the lab. <laughs> so I did, I did a two week research elective Wow. Um, to try and finish up my last experiments. And then I I kind of had a bubbling in the background. I had this paper, that uh, manuscript that I was editing and figures that I was, this is all through. But then I decided to actually do a two-week elective in pathology, in forensic pathology, because I figured this would be a setting in which I could ask lots of questions. I would be able to learn a lot about different pathology that I would see in the actual um, hospital space, but it would be a little bit less pressure. Um And then I would also get a chance to kind of review my anatomy. So I was very strategic about picking this elective. Was it like CSI Salt Lake City? It was. uh, (laughs) You, everybody I've talked to that has also done this elective, you kind of get immersed into the crime beat and you start like following the news. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) Really closely. And you're like, oh, I'll probably see. Yeah. I'll see that. There's a body in the reservoir. Oh, there you found a body in the desert. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, Lake Powell, because it's so deep, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a refrigerator. So they, uh, they actually recovered a gentleman who had fallen off of his houseboat, unfortunately, and passed away. Um, and he was like remarkably well-preserved, mm. um, because it'd been like, he was at the bottom of Lake Powell. So that was, wow. that was, that was an interesting standpoint from the, you know, just learning about how the, how the human body reacts to different environment, environmental stresses. So, so forensic, forensic pathology. And then what was your next couple rotations? And then I had neurology, which is a little bit on the shorter side. So it's about four weeks. And that, I mean, that is, that is like fast. You have to be able to study efficiently and it, but it was uh, inpatient and that two weeks of inpatient and then two weeks of outpatient. And this was great for me because it kind of gave me, it allowed me to kind of dip my toes into how both of those services kind of, how they work and how to prepare for them. Um, and then it was also a little bit more narrow. Now, while neurology touches all parts of the body and the physical exam is all over. So really kind of getting my clinical, my physical exam skills back, it was very focused on processes of nerves and the brain. And I, that made it very kind of, again, like I was able to kind of put it in this box and study really hard for it and, and ultimately like do okay, (laughs) in my exams. But it, again, it kind of felt like I was taking off a little bit of a, a bite as opposed to having the whole cake in front of me. And then I was ready for the whole cake. I started with internal, then I went on to internal medicine mm. and that was, that was hard. Um, it was a lot. And I did a, I had to study. I, I think I set up my set, my study schedule where I would come home every day and I would study for at least an hour to two hours. And then I would go to bed and I'd wake up and do it again. And that was every day. Wow. But I was on service. And then when I would have my days off, that would be at least six hours of studying. And then I did practice. I did four practice tests for that shelf exam. Wow. And and Claire, you kind of alluded to it, but like you talked about with your PhD in science in the grad school, uh, part of your training, you kind of had to find your people, find your lab. 
Mm-hmm. Were you able to find that yet in third year? I mean, do you know what kind of doctor you want to be? Or is that still kind of, are you still like a pluripotent stem cell? And that's <laughs> not been fully uh, determined. I think I have a very clear, um, a very clear subset that I'm thinking about. Um, I loved, so after internal medicine, I did my surgery rotation and I loved it. Um, and I think this has a little bit to do with, you know, so some folks kind of, you kind of think that, oh, if you're an MD PhD, you're most likely, and this is true. I mean, you look at the stats, most people go into internal medicine mm-hmm. um, and then they kind of specialize from there. And I could see that path for myself. I could see myself going internal medicine to um, hemonc and then continuing my work in, can- in colon cancer from that avenue. But I absolutely just, I, I feel like I thrived. Like I just completely blossomed in the OR. I loved the procedures. I loved taking care of those uh, surgical patients. I loved the evaluation. It kind of brought back some of these when I was an EMT, uh, when we were down doing our 24-hour shifts at, um, in the trauma bay. Uh, and I also loved the science of surgery. Um, there's quite a bit in how we practice the art of surgery that is still very much under investigation. Mm -hmm. And there's also, again, there's, again, I could become, I could do general surgery, become a colorectal surgeon and still work with this patient population that I've, I've worked with my PhD on. But I'm also considering kind of a swerve again. Um, I really enjoyed my vascular surgery rotation. Um, and I, Loved that I was all over the body um, in terms of there's blood vessels everywhere. And then actually the metabolism of blood vessels is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then also the coagulation cascade. So another wonderful (laughs) biochemical pathway (laughs) for me to dive into. It's like you just can't Um, quit it. You just keep on going back to it. (laughs) (laughs) So those are kind of, that's kind of where I'm thinking. And I, I actually, I think with a lot of my classmates, we're, we're very, we're pretty, we're disappointed that we haven't been able to finish our third year the way that we had thought and hoped. Mm-hmm. And part of that for me is that I, I really did want to, I wanted to give my OBGYN rotation a really good shake because it's again, another uh, kind of surgical uh, subspecialty that has some really interesting clinical questions for research um, that all again can kind of center back on metabolism. And again, we can talk about pluripotency mm-hmm. <laughs> Um and so I was, I was kind of, I was kind of bummed that I didn't get a chance to finish that rotation out. So I'm, I'm still kind of putting that one a little bit on the board of, well, maybe I'm going to try and, and, and get that, get through the rest of that rotation when we do get back to clinic and maybe I'll, maybe I'll completely surprise myself and end up applying OBGYN. But I'm kind of, I think those are my three that I've really found myself loving, um, mm-hmm. that I couldn't imagine myself doing anything different. Like, so general surgery or vascular surgery or possibly OBGYN. Wonderful. Well, Claire, like I, this has been great. And I guess I just want to take the last few minutes. Um, you know, I've heard so much about your journey, but with, with the coronavirus as COVID-19, I know you've been very um, visible and very active in trying to help out. And can you just talk about some of your efforts. Cause I think that'd yeah. be very interesting to a lot of listeners out there. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. So when we got pulled from clinic, um, we ended up with having, you know, all this free time, right? So I'm used to, I'm used to studying only an hour to two hours every day after I'd been at work all day. And now I had all this dedicated time to study. And I also recognized that you could kind of see across the nation. um, Everybody was talking about how there were protective gear shortages and Utah was a little bit like we only had a very few number of cases. So I thought that this was a opportunity to create, um, 
a, a stockpile of, of protective gear so that we could uh, protect our healthcare workers when inevitably we would get kind of the spread of the virus um, and potentially have a surge. And, and then we kind of had this timing where we would be a little bit ahead of that. So people would still kind of be out and about and able to donate what they might have. So I took inspiration from other medical students across the nation who had also organized these kinds of drives. So we, we organized a four weekend personal protective gear donation drive where it was just drive through drop off. Uh, folks could just look through their garages or their homes, supply closets, see if they had any unused items and then drop them off. And I didn't realize how this would actually impact the community, I think, in, 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 our, in our medical student community in kind of two ways. One was I, it kind of fed how I felt like I really wanted to be able to do something. Um, and I could see that other medical students really were looking for ways like I, I, I need to be able to do something. I need to help. This is what I've been training for. And not only to help the patients, but also to help my team, my, my provider team, the people that I've, my, have been my mentors. Um, and for me too, a personal connection of a lot of my, my friends are residents who are on the front lines. So it was really inspiring to be able to do that and provide an avenue with our volunteer base that people could volunteer to do so. But then the second part of that was that the community also wants to be able to help out. And we saw people clapping, cheering, um, so excited to drop off, you know, one N95 mask that they had bought years ago. Um, or even one woman, she just burst into tears. And she said, you know, I, I'm a retired nurse and I just can't even believe that this is happening. And I'm so grateful that you guys are doing this. So I have a chance to give back. And it was something like that, that I didn't realize how important it was for our community to be able to show how much they care. Um, so it's been really, really heartwarming, and I've been completely touched by the generosity of the Greater Salt Lake area um, in, in running this donation drive. To date, we've collected over over thirteen hundred and ninety five masks, and that's just one segment of all the things that we've collected. But kind of that like hot ticket item that we think about. That's great, Claire. And like, and so you said it's 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 been going on for four weekends, and and where do people go, and how, how, how is it all over, or can people still donate? Um, this is, we're actually heading into our last weekend. So we hope to see you. It's going to be at Rio Tinto stadium in Sandy, and we're going to be running Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 12 to four. And is it just, is it you and the medical students or is, is this another organization you partnered with or who's kind of, who's kind of taking part in it? So it's driven by us. So we're, it's, it's University of Utah medical students. We are the volunteers. We are the people that have organized this. Um, but we have been so fortunate to partner with Real Salt Lake Foundation, as well as the Rio Tinto Stadium, to, in order to bring this kind of last big drive. Um, and so we're really hoping people will be able to turn out. Um, we have a big, large parking lot to use. <laughs> so that'll be great. Yeah. How did you get in touch with them? I mean, like, are you a big soccer fan or, or it, that was, it, it was just, they were willing or how, how'd you connect with them? Uh, so I started with reaching out to just a lot of different people. And I, and I, yes, I do enjoy watching soccer, uh, go us women's world cup, um, go Royals and go, go real Salt Lake. I really enjoy going to soccer games. Um, but it was also just thinking about, I was looking very strategically on the map of like, what would be the best, um, what would be some of the best places that we could run these drives? What are things that are central that have good drive throughs? Um, and I just, I just called them. Um, and they got back to me and they were really excited about partnering, um, and have just been so supportive throughout this whole thing. So the value of the cold call, (laughs) (laughs) um, 
And yeah, they, they, they bought in very early on, um, probably early April. And we've been having um, a couple weeks to kind of plan and roll things out. So uh, we're really hopeful that one will be one will be offering the community as they drive out uh, one of the white ribbons that you've been seeing around. Mm-hmm. Um, we've as med students, we practice our sterile techniques. So these have been sterilely pinned um, and they will be available to, for the public to take take a clean one. And then second is that Real Salt Lake, uh, the foundation is planning on offering some sort of uh, merchandise uh, e- either at the time if we're able to have it packaged in a way that's safe uh, for the public to take or to redeem later when this pandemic has passed. So well, look forward to that. Well, Claire, I mean, you had to defend your dissertation. So I, I imagine um, doing a co- cold call with Real Salt Lake was easy compared to that, <laughs> right? So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, it was, I don't know. I had to like, I wrote out a script and I had my mom read it. Uh, okay. <laughs> For your dissertation? That, that, your mom's great. Uh, she, both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love she it. said it was a little easier to get through the cold call. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, last question, Claire. What advice, what counsel would you give someone out there who was just like you, like seven, eight, nine years ago, and just thinking about MD-PhD or thinking about medical school? What, what would you say to them? What, what counsel would you give to someone? I would say reach out. Uh, reach out to the people that you know that have followed this path. And if you don't know anybody, do the cold call. Uh, We, as a community, as a profession, are incredibly welcoming and want to hear from you. And that's at all levels. You don't have to call the chair of the department, but you can. Um, But if you're interested in this, give your local students a call. Uh, Find out from them, connect with them. And figure out if this is like shadow. I would have students come and just shadow in the lab to see if they liked it. Um, so yeah, we, we're here. We want to be a resource for the next generation. I mean, the people that are going to take care of us. <laughs> very true. Very true. Well, Claire, this has been fantastic. I'll have to have you come back on because I'm curious if you're going to pick gen surge or vascular surgery or OBGYN. I, I, I think... Yeah, the future is wide open and we'll get through this COVID-19 pandemic and pretty soon you'll have your own match day, not, 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 not too far away in the future. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I, you know, if it has to be a virtual format, I'm okay with that. It's still, it's still reaching that milestone and being able to celebrate with all the people that I know. And sometimes a text message can be just as powerful as, uh, as a hug. So yeah. Well, thank you, Claire. Appreciate your time. You take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.